Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Another day, another dollar. (laughs) Just kidding. Hopefully another dollar. (laughs) I know these times are so weird. It's tough for everyone out there. It, It really is. But we have a very exciting guest here to talk about her book, Phyllis Fagel. I hope I said that right. You did. You make me nervous. You always second guess yourself and I thought I, I was going to do it. <laughs> but this was good because she gave us a rhyme. So I feel like yes. it was easy. So thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and a little bit about your background to kind of introduce our listeners to you? Sure. Uh, first, thank you for inviting me. I can tell from our pre-conversation that this is going to be very fun. I am a school counselor and I'm a psychotherapist. I work primarily with children and teens, and I work all week full-time as a school counselor in a K-8 school, an independent school in Washington, D.C., and I also am a writer, so I wrote Middle School Matters, the 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond and How Parents Can Help, and I frequently write columns for the Washington Post. So you are very busy. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners just a brief, what's the difference between a psychotherapist and like a psychologist or there's a lot of terms out there. There's yes. Differences. <laughs> So I'm an LCPC in this part of the country, and LCPC is a licensed clinical professional counselor, and that is the degree that you get in order to work in the public schools in the area where I started my career in counseling, and so a psychologist would have a PhD. So what kind of drew you to this area for work? Was it because you had kids, or it was something before kids? Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? So I started my career actually as a journalist, and spent about a decade as a writer, and then I went back to school to study counseling, thinking I wanted to work in a school, but not sure if I'd want to work in private practice. As it turns out, I ended up doing a little bit of both. I never intended to be a middle school counselor. I always intended to work with older kids, actually. Hmm. But because of the job market at the time, I had done my internship in elementary school. And then I started my work in a high school. And when I left to go do primarily private practice and wanted to come back into the school system, the only job really that was open at the time was in the middle school. And so I thought I'd give it a try and discovered right away that I loved it, that middle school was my favorite age group to work with. Mm -hmm. And also really quickly realized that they were a really distinct and unique breed. And they had very little to in common with either the elementary schools I had worked with initially or the high schoolers I had worked with after that. And also there was very little written about the age group. So they had In research, they were either lumped in with older adolescents or with younger kids. And so I started writing about the phase using my writing background because I wanted to learn more myself that I could use in the work I was doing. You know what I found is that a lot of people are hesitant about middle school. I remember when I was in college, I was a child development major, and many of my peers were going into teaching. And so many people were hesitant about middle school. But in our line of work, we've met a number of people who work with middle school students. And I feel like everyone we talk to says, has kind of a similar story of, don't know that I wanted to work with this population, but it is exactly the right population for me. And they are so special. It's, I think it's everyone like is hesitant, 
why do you think people are hesitant about the middle school years? But it's obviously not as scary, right? No, it's not. I think part of it is that when we went through middle school ourselves, we were experiencing every emotion as at 10. It was an incredibly memorable time because we had no life experience. We had no perspective. Those slights hurt so bad, but the highs were so high. And I think we bring all of that to the table as adults. And we think about that phase as being a time to dread when I don't actually think those experiences were objectively worse than bad experiences we've had at other times in our life. It's just that we were going through puberty at that point in time. And that's how we remember them. And I think the other reason people avoid middle school or don't really seek it out is because it has such a negative reputation in the culture. You know, movies like Mean Girls, we think about middle schoolers as being these drama-seeking, mean kids, and nothing could be farther from the truth. And in fact, that whole stereotype, I think, is really damaging to kids and damaging to how they see themselves and how they experience middle school. Yeah, they're making mistakes, and they are occasionally mean, but it's because they're learning and they don't have a lot of experience. It's not because there's something about their character that is lacking. I think once a child reaches the age where they're walking and talking and communicating on some form, you know, with language, we just look at them as little adults. So then as they get older, in primarily, you know, middle school age, you're just like, oh, yeah, you can be a little adult. And it's like the furthest thing from the truth, right? (laughs) They're still developing. They're still trying to understand, like you were saying, you know, these are experiences, you know, maybe losing a friend, you know, she doesn't want to play with you anymore, or, you know, the clicks and just, you know, getting into fashion and maybe boy, like these are all very new experiences. And I think that sometimes, and this happens to us all the time, we go to hundreds of IEP meetings. So for us, another IEP meeting, another day, right? Like obviously we have some very specific skill set that we are going to bring to the table to advocate for our client. But for some of these parents, this is the first time they've ever talked to an attorney. This is the first time they've ever hired an attorney. And we try to bring that sense to the IEP team because sometimes the teams just kind of talk right through the parent and it's like hey you know what this is actually only parents second IEP can we like take it down a notch and like really and so I think that perspective and you bringing that to the forefront of like these kiddos are still experiencing things that they've never experienced in their entire life and anytime that happens to us as an adult like it's the weird like I Obviously, Amanda just became a mom and I have a 22 month old and just that experience, like I'd never experienced becoming a mother, right? And there's very few things as you get older that are just completely brand new. And let me tell you, it throws you for a loop. I mean, maybe some people- Totally changes your life. Yeah, yeah. And so I love that you kind of are bringing that to the forefront and like, I love a list. I love a good 10 things, you know, that children need to know. But yeah, what are some of the things you know, that you have come across or that you have talked about in your book that can kind of help change that perspective for parents about the middle schooler. I think first, just talk a little bit about why it's such an important time to stay in there as a parent. What's magical about the age is that they are intellectually curious and they're capable and they're taking in information rapidly. They're changing faster than they have at any time in their life other than that birth to two period Mm -hmm. of their life. But at the same time, they have this little kid quality so they can go back and forth between seeming like a 13-year-old and seeming like a 3-year-old and seeming like a 30-year-old. And so parents still have a lot of influence over their decisions, over how they treat other people, over the values they acquire, the habits 
that they acquire, the skills they develop. And so it's different than elementary school in that a child is going to really bristle if you get in there and tell them how to live their life or who they should be friends with or how they should complete an assignment. But they are open to advice as long as you deliver it in a way that is comes from a stance of curiosity, and that has more to do with coaching than controlling. So that is a hard transition for parents. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that communication piece. How can you talk to your child in a way that they're ready to hear you, that they're ready to absorb that information? And in some ways, it's not that dissimilar from what you were talking about with the adults at that IEP table. It is really intimidating to sit at a table with 10 educators and a couple of attorneys at once. And in some ways, that is an empathy building moment to imagine what it might be like to be a middle schooler. It's something you can use going forward. Imagine how you felt at that table, your first IEP meeting. That's what a middle schooler feels like every single time they walk into a building or try to make a new friend or try out for a team or have to give a presentation in front of the class or get dumped by friends. And the list goes on and on and on. And so it's just a time defined by so much churn and change. And I think that is important for parents to take moving forward simply because it's so easy to just get caught up in the little dramas that are life, right? And even as adults, I mean, there's plenty of adults that, you know, don't know how to socially or how to emotionally regulate themselves. You know, there are some healthy options, you know, meditation, going for a run, you know, and but those are all, you know, temporary. And then there's some not so good ways, potentially, I don't know, uh, having a drink or two can kind of take the edge off, but we can make those decisions as adults. And I think that, you know, for children being able to kind of recognize, I think the saying is 10% of life is like things happening to you and 90% is how you react to it or something like that. Right. And it's so true, but we just, it's so easy for us to get caught up. What pieces of advice do you have for parents? And I'm sure it's, it's in your book, but if you wanted to talk a little bit about what it is that, you know, your book kind of focuses on. Well, in terms of that 90% reaction piece, which is true. If you have a negative experience and you only fixate on that and you discount everything else, let's say 20 people tell a 13-year-old that they love that they love your haircut. And then one person comes along and says, oh, you got a haircut. (laughs) Right. Devastating. That day, that kid is going to be walking around saying, oh my God, what is wrong with my head? Right. Right. So one of the skills we want to be teaching kids in this age group is to really challenge those what I call lies they tell themselves, to pull their thoughts back to the middle. That is such an important piece of self-regulation because your thoughts impact your feelings. Your feelings impact your behavior. So if we can nip it at the thought level, then we are going to really be able to help them self-regulate. I also will tell kids, it's not like you can control your feelings. Emotions are like a train going through a tunnel. You have to go all the way through. But you can control how you behave. And so in middle school, and that's when kids get into some trouble, maybe they hear a really juicy piece of gossip and they want to be liked, they want to be the center of attention, they want to have the best story at lunch, and so they share it. And what we want to be helping them understand in this age for among the, when they're going through this period of their life is that, you know, what feels even better is to be known as somebody who's evolved, as somebody people can trust. But they don't instinctively weigh the options. They're just, everything is impulsivity. And right. so we can help them slow down and think through what that situation might look like, what might happen on the other side as well. Well, and a lot of this is just like, you know, how you kind of work on yourself just in general as adults, it it takes practice, right? It's not something that is going to come naturally automatic, even for adults, even for people who 
you know, know that they should do X, Y, and Z. It's going to take practice. So I love that you're talking about it in the middle school age because I think too often we talk about high school as being the time we are helping kids get ready for the real world. But if they've already developed some maybe bad habits or some habits that aren't as helpful, you know, and they get to high school, not that it's too late at that time, but it's going to be a little bit more challenging than if we can start them off on the right foot when they're starting to go through, you know, these new changes, like in middle school, like it's not too soon to start. Not at all. And in fact, it's such a low stakes time. I always say middle school is a high stakes time to sit out because there's so much good you can do as a parent, so much coaching you can accomplish in those years. But it's low stakes in that the mistakes they're making, whether they need to develop study skills and they fail a couple of classes along the way, or they change friend groups multiple times and struggle in that way, which almost all of them do at some point or another during middle school. Whatever it is that they happen to be stumbling and working out along the way, middle school is a time when it's easier to rebound, it's easier to recover, and you're not as set in your ways. By high school, you have fewer options, the stakes are higher, you're thinking about college, you care a lot less about what your parents think, you've already moved on much more to be with your peers, and so middle school is still, you've got that childlike quality that you can really get in there and parent. I wanted to talk about a little bit of your experience post-COVID as a school counselor. How has that been for you in being able to kind of touch base with your students and just provide, you know, the best support? It's such a traumatizing time, really. And I wonder if you're able to kind of speak a little bit to that experience. So we have here at my school, we just returned in hybrid. So oh, okay. the kids are still doing half virtual, half in person. Okay. But up until about two weeks ago, they were 100% virtual. And to say that students were struggling would be an understatement. It has been a tremendously hard time for many of them. I would say probably a harder time for middle schoolers than any other age group because it's a developmental imperative for middle schoolers, for tweens to pull away from their parents, spend more time with peers, to have more autonomy, more independence. And when the pandemic hit, what that really meant in their day lives is that they were spending 24-7 with the same parents that they were supposed to be pulling away from. And so their parents were in their business. Their parents were not that pleased if they were necessarily, if they locked themselves in their room, which was what they were doing to be adaptive and find a way to get a little bit of alone time. And they felt much more sensitive about where their peer relationships stood and whether their friends would still be there when they got back. Right. Kids who had struggled socially before had trouble connecting at all virtually or you know and they no longer had the in-person option a lot of kids who struggle socially they can still develop social skills and feel included because there are structured interactions in the school setting and in the absence of that there were some kids who really had no social interaction and then you had the extroverted kids who would say that their social needs weren't being met And they were the ones who are most likely to get themselves in trouble by posting something mean because they were Mm. looking for that feedback. And introverts who might have been really happy to be home (laughs) often felt a lot of pressure to socialize because their parents were worried about them and bugging them to make plans. So it's been hard for kids. And it's also hard academically. They don't have any executive functioning skills yet anyway. Future planning doesn't kick in until age 15. So then you throw in all virtual learning, trying to stay focused on a screen, trying to go to seven different portals to find your assignments and make sure that you complete them and that you send them in. And if you have Wi-Fi, you know, across the country, we know there are a lot of kids who weren't able to access school at all. 
well. And it's a relief for me to have my students back in the building for half a day and to be able to lay eyes on them and see how they're doing and connect with them face to face. I bet. Well, and then you got the added factor of going, like the students that are transitioning from elementary school to middle school, academic are so much more challenging. It's a different ball game for many of these kids, especially if, you know, maybe they were struggling in an area to begin with, going, you know, completely online for something that already was going to be challenging. I can only imagine how that can affect and is affecting their self-esteem, their mental health, which impacts everything else that you were talking about. So it's like that added hurdle. It really is. And I think everybody feels a little bit insecure. Even adult professionals are feeling anxious about how they're able to function in their own jobs. Maybe they're also balancing their jobs with kids. And they have more in common with middle schoolers right now than they think. You know, I think that insecurity is just almost atmospheric at this point. Some middle schoolers did do better with virtual learning. Kids who needed to get up and move a lot or who liked working at their own pace. It wasn't 100% bad for them, but there are also kids who needed interventions that are impossible to deliver virtually, and so for all intents and purposes, they were denied the kind of education they need to be successful. We've talked before about how we think COVID is just going to have such a long-standing effect on so many of these kids, and one thing that we've talked about is you know, the kids that are just learning to read at this time, the younger kids, it, how much is going to impact their literacy later on. But I can imagine the middle school, the trauma of everything we've talked about, you think it's going to probably impact them for a long time, not just, you know, a short amount of time. You know, with resiliency and with trauma, we know that the number one predictor of a kid weathering it okay is that they have a really loving, caring, devoted adult at home. So I think we're going to see some kids who have had greater trauma and less support and other kids who've had trauma, but they've had a lot of support. And so there will be a fair amount of differences among between and among kids in terms of how they handle this after the fact. But even kids who don't typically struggle in school, some of them started to fail classes or started to feel like they weren't able to do the work the way they had prior to the pandemic. And so their confidence has taken a hit too. It isn't just the kids who were struggling before. It's really all kids. I will say there are some kids who are gifted and who really liked this time period because they could take a deep dive into a subject and they didn't have to pace themselves with their peers. And that was actually a bonus for them. But in terms of the long-term trauma, I don't think we know yet exactly what that will look like. The kids will catch up academically, hopefully eventually, not all of them, but the majority over time will. I think the emotional aftershocks will probably linger for five years or more. And I think that is really imperative to continue to talk about the mental health. We've seen a big push, you know, in the last couple of years, but most definitely during this pandemic to not stigmatize mental health. So anxiety, depression, really focusing on what anxiety can look like. You know, it's not just people typically assume anxiety is, you know, maybe panic attacks or heavy breathing, you know, breathing into a paper bag, you know, the way that Hollywood portrays it, you know, it really, 
can be appear as flakiness, quote unquote, right? Where you're just yeah. not able to show up. Um, you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of text messages that you've gotten in one day. And, or, you know, I follow a, a ton of accounts and there's always great infographics about, you know, what depression looks like, what anxiety looks like, because it's not what everybody thinks, you know, it is. And that sense of loneliness, I think, will particularly hit that age group of eight to 15. I was reading an article about that just completely changing their core. This, you know, is going to change everybody's lives, but particularly those children because of the developmental kind of phase that they're in. This puts them on different tracks, you know, for the rest of their lives. In middle schoolers, anxiety, depression don't look the way they look in older teens. They can be really smiling and happy and light. one moment and feel crushingly sad the next so it's easy it's more often missed depression and anxiety are missed more often in younger adolescents than in older adolescents on top of that younger adolescents don't have as broad a feelings vocabulary and they don't have as deep an understanding of those mental health conditions they don't know when they should be asking for help they might ask a peer instead of an adult not Mm. recognizing that it's too big of a problem for a peer and one statistic i heard recently that was truly shocking to me was that 50% of kids have thought about suicide or self-harm during the pandemic. Before the pandemic, we already had a doubling in suicide among kids ages 10 to 14. So mental health issues were already on the rise and a problem. And it's why we want to be prioritizing relationships over rigor. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, you see, you know, scenes of it, especially pre-COVID of, you know, a nine-year-old taking his own life and us as adults thinking, oh my goodness, you know, it's just a phase. It get Things get better, you know, and not really understanding that for that child, they didn't even have the emotional intelligence to even process, right? No, and half of suicide among kids is impulsivity. Yeah. And so we that is yet another reason we want to be arming them with strategies absolutely. for self-regulation. Yeah, yeah. We have seen a, pu- a bit of push in schools for mindfulness during this time, you know, not just kind of brain breaks, but really trying to focus on the social emotional aspect. But, you know, it's also hard. I was in an IEP yesterday and, you know, when a child decides they want to turn the video off, you know, they'll turn the video off and that's difficult. And yeah. This isn't the best, but at least, you know, I can see you, right, Phyllis? I can see Amanda, like I can kind of pick up on cues, you know, <laughs> that's difficult. Was that kind of some the stuff that you were seeing or because it was a one-to-one setting during distance learning with you and maybe your students, you know, you didn't really see that too often. I'm trying to think of things for our teachers to be able to try and do as they're listening because we do have some teachers that listen. Shout out to the teachers. You're doing the best yeah, you can. Shout out to the teachers. Yeah. The video camera is a major issue for middle schoolers because they're already so self-conscious and they cannot stand seeing, all, many of them cannot stand seeing themselves on the screen. But meanwhile, they're going to be less engaged in the class if they're not on this screen and their teacher is going to not be able to gauge their level of understanding in the same way. And it's horrible for the teachers to be talking to a bunch of black squares too. So what I've been advising teachers to do is particularly in schools that are not requiring the camera and most schools are not requiring it as an equity issue because it's impossible to know if a kid doesn't want to be on camera because they're sitting outside, you know, at Taco Bell to get Wi-Fi or they're in a bathroom because it's the only place in the house that they can zoom into their class or there might be violence in the household. But then there's another group of kids who are just anxious about it, but do want to build the courage to be on camera. So I encourage teachers,
teachers to inquire, to let them know that they, if they're able to be on camera, that's great. If they're not, I'm happy to accommodate that, but let's talk about it. But if you're not on camera because you're really self-conscious, but you want to build your courage muscle, let's figure out what we can do. Maybe you can be on camera for the first five minutes and the last five minutes, or maybe yeah. you just show me your forehead so I know you're there. Like a plan. Or you all on camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you're on camera, and sometimes it aims at the ceiling, but yeah, for the yeah. most part, you're there. Right. So working toward those goals, because I think if we just blanket accept the kid is not on the camera, we are missing an opportunity to connect with them. And one of the misconceptions is that if kids are not on camera, that they don't want to connect. They absolutely right. still want those relationships right. with the teacher. Absolutely. I was this IEP meeting, the kiddo was a little bit older, but still the mentality of one in middle school. And, you know, this was the first time they were talking about why he had his camera off. And I was like, how are you, you know, but this is the first time all the teachers were in the same yeah. room, right? And yeah. one, you know, for his history teacher, he's like, I've never had a problem with him and his camera because the first teacher was his like check-in teacher. And she's like, he yeah. never has his camera on. Then the history teacher goes, he's like, I've never had a problem. I mean, you know, the science teacher goes, yeah, he never has his camera on. And I kept asking, have you asked him why? And then, you know, the guardian finally was like, you know, there's so-and-so child in that class. And he's had real issues with that child. And he just does not want to, right? And it was just like, how are we having this conversation for the first time? We've been doing this. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It never happens. I mean, I was in an AP yesterday as well. And it was a similar thing where it wasn't about the camera, but it was about the child logging on to times. And I just sat there and could not believe that not a single teacher had asked. Right. Why? And, you know, they asked the parents, Yeah. why is he not logging in? And I go, why don't, have you not asked the child? Like, they can, if yeah. they're verbal and they can communicate, try asking them. Definitely. And a lot of middle schoolers actually respond to the strategy of blocking their view of themselves because it's not so much that they're worried about other people seeing them. It's that they're a distraction to themselves, mm-hmm. to themselves. They just do not want to be staring at their image. And if you watch a grid of middle schoolers in a class, often you'll see them making funny faces or like fixing their hair or adjusting their body because they're so uncomfortable in their own skin and Mm -hmm. they're forced. I mean, yet another insult to injury of this pandemic for middle schoolers is that in addition to being with their parents 24-7, they have to stare at themselves for eight hours (laughs) a day. Right, yeah. Yeah. I I wouldn't like doing that. (laughs) No. It's just too much screen time and we all get it and we're trying to work through it, you know, and I think that even though it's so obvious to us what you're saying, you know, it's the first time that, you know, it's really washing over us and we're having that opportunity. And I'm sure that there's administrators out there that are listening and it was just like, yeah, have we asked? You know, like I said, we're so caught up. And what was the story that we were saying to ourselves? Well, we don't know if it's this or if it's that. And it's just like, well, let's just ask to find out what it is. Is it bullying? He's uncomfortable, you know, in his own skin. Is it something that we can set up a plan to work through? You know, I love that idea. That was such a great idea. Do they just need a snack in the middle and maybe they can turn the camera off for this? Or there was another situation that I heard about where the child had divorced parents and in one of the homes they felt comfortable being on camera but in the other home there was less stability they did not feel comfortable but because they didn't want any questions they kept the phone the camera off in both settings oh interesting okay once someone asked and they recognized that they wouldn't have to turn it on in the other one just because they had it on in the first home then they were okay leaving it on for the times that they were in that first 
family's home, right. not, not parents' and home. And then that's at least half the time that the teacher has the more information that they can, yes. you know, get from the visualization of it. Yeah, we're learning a lot. And I hope that is what this time, if there's a silver lining, you know, parents really seeing how their children are being educated, what's working, what's not working has definitely yeah. been a plus for us and our clients. But also, I think just being able to check in with ourselves mm-hmm. and with others in appropriate ways, right? And just having oh. that terminology. And communication between school and home is critical in normal times, but right now, because parents are playing such a hands-on role, it's even more critical in knowing how to communicate effectively with this school and how to be partners instead of it being adversarial. Most educators I know, if not all educators I know, would far rather the parents tell them there's a problem at home with homework or with learning than have it be home full of conflict, particularly right now. And, you know, there are parents who feel a lot of pressure to make sure that their child is in the class, that they're doing their work. And I think it's important to remember that if that's happening and you're having fights over homework, that's a good time to reach out to the school and say, this is what is happening. Could you help us solve it? And maybe that's when you have that team meeting. My favorite team meeting of all time was and this was pre-pandemic, it was all of this, the child's teachers. They were all around the table and the parent and the child. And we were talking about why this kid wasn't doing his homework, why he was so distracted at home. And finally, I don't know that I can take credit for this. Somebody asked, what is happening in your home while you're doing your homework? Where are you doing your homework? What is happening? And it came to life that this child had a parakeet that talked the entire time (laughs) he was trying to do his work. It was like seven months into the year. And duh, the solution was to work in a parakeet-free room. Right. But But he (laughs) hadn't thought of that. He thought, I got to work in my room. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 And like the parents, nobody, like, that's what I'm saying is like having this conversation with you, it's like, I understand everything that you're saying and it's so apparent to me, but it's like, if we're not having this conversation, you know, it's not washing, it's not really resonating. And like, that is a perfect example of like, get the bird out of the room. Like, what are we doing? Or get you out of the room. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. But yeah, like nobody had asked, you know, what was going on for seven months. Yeah, we have to figure out what is getting in the kids way and the only way to know is by asking and I think there's a lot of fear among educators we don't want to pry we don't want to ask too much and I think teachers are not trained in mental health they don't want to ask a question that's going to open a Pandora's box that they don't feel they can um, help the child and I think we also need to remind teachers that if they get information and they're not able to follow through and help that they can say to the child that's not something that I can help you with but I can get you the support you need and then connect them with the appropriate people whether it's an administrator or a counselor. I think that's wonderful advice and I think something else that I'd want to add just from like personal experience with what Amanda and I are, are seeing in the schools is you know you don't always have to have the answer sometimes just listening and asking, what can I do for you now? Because it's so easy to be like, if there's anything that you need, like, let me know. And it's like, but I don't know that I need you to do anything. But if you ask the question in a different way or just show that support, I I have a a new client who, you know, she's 15 and it really took everything inside of her to kind of share what was happening with her her mental health, but also her physical health um, with a teacher. And they had just started the hybrid and the teacher was completely dismissive 
and just was like, well, why is that happening now? And it's like, well, I just had surgery and like kind of questioning her. So then it put her in a position where she's trying to defend herself. And all that teacher needed to do, whether the teacher believed her or not, was just say, you know, thank you for sharing. You know, let me know what I can do to help. And, you know, who knows what was happening with that teacher. But I think that, like I said, we're so caught up in what's going on in our minds and our heads that when somebody, I know I like want to be a fixer and it's like, I can't be like that. (laughs) Uh, And teachers also, um, they might think a child is defiant and and feel like they're just being oppositional or don't want to do the work. I once had a teacher who felt that way about a student and was frustrated. Why wasn't she turning in any work? And when she would ask the kid, like, where's your work? The kid would say homework is bullshit. I don't believe Mm. in it. And so I went on a walk with this child and said, how is everything going? And she ended up disclosing that she really didn't know how to do the work. She didn't know what she was doing. And so it was easier and self-protective to be avoidant rather than admit she didn't know how to do the work. And a child is not going to admit that they don't know what they're doing unless they feel safe. Well, and I think that's a problem that we see, I mean, across the board with kids, but also we see this a lot in a lot of our communities, is we place too much of the burden on them, like Vicky said, to ask for the help but also to share things, to do things on their own. And we haven't taught them how to do it, but we still expect them to just master and be independent to do all of these things that we expect them to do, one without teaching them, and then also without any prompting. And it's like we need to be more cognizant about, especially this age group, but any age, that sometimes you need to help them get there first before Absolutely. they can We can't be putting the burden on them all the time. That's why one of my 10 skills is self-advocacy, because it's not an innate ability. Kids do not know how to ask a teacher for help or how to organize their schedule so someone is checking their planner or making sure that they understand the directions on an assignment. That is something that we need to model for our kids, even how to write an appropriate email. And, you know, it's the whole I do, we do, you do approach. Once they can do it on their own, we don't want to do it for them anymore. But we have to coach them in this age group. We have to show them how to do it, how to have a proper salutation, how to ask for what they need, and even how to identify what they need. They may not even realize what's going on in their internal life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, I wish you could work with all of our students. (laughs) <laughs> I know. <laughs> but no, we really, we just thank you so much for your time and your insight and your experience and for this wonderful book that I think can help parents and any administrator really kind of either dip their toes into the middle school pool, if you will, or just kind of help with this seemingly wonderful and not dreadful time in, in our children's lives. Definitely. And I think if you understand the age and if you understand what they're how their brains work during this phase, then you stop taking it personally. And it's so much easier to start from a place of empathy and curiosity and to get better results. And to be kind, which is a constant, just just a constant reminder. And it seems so easy, but it's not as easy as everybody thinks. Well, Phyllis, again, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast and sharing about yourself and your book. If people wanted to reach out to you or wanted to purchase the book, what is the best way for them to do either of those things? The book is available on Amazon. The book is available in most bookstore websites. And I have a website. It's phyllisfagel.com. And most of my articles and my email is there as well if anyone wants to reach out. 
Excellent. Perfect. Thank you again so much. And we hope everyone goes and checks it out. And we will see you all or talk to you all. We are not <laughs> seeing <laughs> anyone. <laughs> I know. Take care, Bye. you guys. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.